you would just remain seated this morning as we read. Our passage is chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joadah, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Ishana. They laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Moranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mespah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them Uziel, the son of Heraha, goldsmiths repaired. And next to them Hananiah, one of the perfumers, Repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jedah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshabaniah, repaired. Malachijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Holahash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malachijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhaza, ruler of the district of Mespah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it, covered it, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzor, repaired to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Raham, the son of Benai, Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Baavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mespah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, 
the son of Zabbai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Buniah, the son of Hinadab, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Peliel, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedai, the son of Parush, and the temple servants living on Ophile repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophile. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hanani, the son of Shelemiah, and Hunan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. The word of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) I would imagine that today's passage stretches your ability to trust Paul that all scripture is profitable for correction and uh, instruction in righteousness. All we have today is a long list of of an ancient people with ancient names working on an ancient city. That's all we've got. And perhaps even more than last week's passage, it seems like Nehemiah is losing the forest for the trees and getting bogged down in details that aren't pertinent to the story. Because at this point, it seems like he could be talking about something more important. The exiles had just responded to his rallying call to rebuild the temple walls, and so you'd think that he would jump into the action and begin telling the story of it was how it was rebuilt, but he doesn't do that. He stops and he gives us this long list of builders that seems to be, quite honest, completely and utterly pointless. It's kind of why we skip over these uh, lists of names in sermon series or in our own personal devotional life because it's really hard to connect these names in a way that makes it matter to our lives. They're just names on a page. Or are they something more? The name Gary Bird probably doesn't mean anything to you either. Gary Bird grew up in a small town in Missouri called Houstonia with a population less than the size of this church. Gary Bird, not to be confused with Larry Bird, although he did play an incredible amount of basketball growing up in Houstonia. And if you travel to uh, Springfield, Missouri, 
and you go into the basement of my parents' house and you start to go through some of the boxes of things that my dad has saved over the years, you'll find a piece of paper with Gary's name on it. It's a rubbing where he scribbled a pencil over a piece of paper on Gary's name engraved in the Vietnam Memorial. Gary was my dad's best friend growing up all through high school. And and Gary stepped on a landmine in Vietnam and was killed in action. Is his name just a name on a wall? Is it just some long list that doesn't mean anything? Is the Vietnam Memorial a simple meaningless list of names that has no real connection with our lives? Or what about the names engraved around the stone on the two waterfalls that mark out the lines of Ground Zero on the 9-11 memorial? What about those names? Are these just memorials, another list of names that we move past and skip over so we can get to the better stuff, the stuff that matters? Truth is, some lists are important because they tell a very important story that's worth remembering. The names on these memorials aren't meaningless. In fact, because there's so many names, is part of the reason why we should appreciate that uh, the list all the, the list becomes all the more important. It gives us a magnitude and scope of the story that should mean something to us. And by that same token, what would it say about us as a culture and as a nation? if we quickly move past such lists, if we stopped spending time listening to it, the moss began to grow and cover all those names so they were lost in history and nobody polished the stone anymore. What would that speak of us? So what does it speak of us today to be so willingly, to so willingly want to skip over something that feels so meaningless? In the same way, these memorials encourage us to stop and reflect so that we don't forget. They're intended to help us remember, but also in some small way, they encourage us to look forward, to consider the future. And just like these memorials, Nehemiah 3 is a list of names given to us by God because these names need to be remembered. And it's worth our time to pause and reflect and hear what God might be speaking to us through these names. And really, they won't be that distant in the future because these are names of people that you will one day meet and talk to in glory. You can sit and listen to their story about what it was like to rebuild the city and its walls. You'll be able to ask them what it was like to be surrounded by their enemies, hopelessly outnumbered and outmatched, sleeping side by side at night, surrounding the wall with a sword in their hands, ready for a fight. Tim, this morning, I gave him the option not to read the passage. I said, I'll read it if you want me to. And he said, no, he said, I practiced. I've practiced each name because I wanted to give these names dignity. I wanted to give these names dignity that stood in harm's way on our behalf in ways that weren't even really clear to them, but they trusted God. And in this list, we're invited to remember because this list are those that God has chosen to remember. These names aren't forgotten in some you know, filing cabinet deep in the halls of history. These are names that God has chosen for history to remember among all the possible names that it could remember. And so what story do they tell? 
Well, if we step back and get our bearings in the story, Nehemiah has returned and surveyed the damage and the exiles have rallied around him to rebuild. But what for? Why do these walls have to be rebuilt? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, Jerusalem is the place that God had chosen to dwell with his people, which meant that not only did the temple need to be rebuilt, but also the city itself and the walls that encircled the city. Jerusalem was meant to be a holy city devoted to God and God alone. And the walls were an emblem of their calling to be separate from the world, from their worship, from their idolatry, and from their sin. But the truth is, their history is actually marked with just that, idolatry and worship of other nations, their pursuit of foreign gods. And God eventually brings down judgment and destroys the city, its temple, and its walls. So these walls are a physical picture, a real-life physical evidence of Israel's sin and shame. The broken walls tell the story of how they'd rejected God and all the suffering and sorrow and pain that had happened as a result of it. But God, in his mercy, has called them to return. He's called them to rebuild because he's still committed to dwelling with his people. And he's promising in this season in Israel's history that he's beginning a new work that what they're doing is the fulfillment of what he prophesied to Jeremiah, but the requirement was that they had to respond by rebuilding. And Nehemiah calls Israel to rebuild the walls and complete the reconstruction, to remove the sin and shame that they became so used to living in. So think of it this way. In order for Israel to truly repent as a people, those walls had to be rebuilt. They had to be rebuilt. They couldn't go halfway and say, well, the temple's rebuilt. I think we're all good. I think it's fine. That's on their terms, not God's terms. God says, I want the entire city to be rebuilt because to not rebuild it would be to fall far short of what God intended for them. So for this generation to accept God's promises, they had to return and rebuild what was broken. If they were going to own God's story, they had to own their history and they had to rebuild what was broken. They couldn't be satisfied with stepping over all the rubble as they made their way up to the temple to offer their sacrifices. They had to repair what was broken. So maybe another picture of this that we're familiar with is the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus comes and as the song goes, Zacchaeus, come down now from going to your house today. And Jesus confronts Zacchaeus with his sin and his shame, but Nehemiah, Zacchaeus doesn't say, you know, Jesus, I really love your teaching and I want to make it a centerpiece of my life, but I'm going to continue to rob my countrymen. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do. The story is different. He's confronted with the damage and destruction he's caused and he's awakened to a new purpose that Jesus wants to give him through repentance, but repentance for him meant that he had to go back and pay what he took. He had to undo what he did. He had to rebuild what he broke down. Which what's true in the Old Testament is true in the New, that God's promises are never, ever without a call to respond. And Israel's proper response to God's promises in this time, that in order for them to God to dwell with his people again, they had to rebuild. And it's in owning their past that Israel found a new hope for the future. This still brings us to the question of why Nehemiah puts this list in his memoir. Perhaps it's at the end of chapter 2 that we get a picture of why. In verses 19 and 20, when they begin to rebuild, 
Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who are adversaries of Israel and don't want anyone to seek their welfare, begin to mock and jeer at them. And they say, are you sure you want to rebuild the temple or rebuild the walls? Why are you doing this? Are you sure that you want to rebel against the king? And you hear this subtle temptation that you can hear, even it reminds us of the garden where they try to induce doubt and uncertainty into what it is that God has wanted and commanded. They wanted Israel to feed on that doubt and begin to ask questions like, yeah, did God really want us to rebuild? It seems dangerous. Maybe it's time for somebody else to do it. Maybe it isn't really our responsibility. Is it worth it? But Nehemiah immediately shuts that down and he says, God will make us prosper. And as for you, you have no portion, right, or claim in Jerusalem. You have no business here. This is not for you. You have no portion, right, or claim. And then Nehemiah 3 begins. I think this list of names is an answer to the question, who does have a portion, right, and claim to God's promises? This list is a picture of the type of community that inherits and receives the promises of God and share in his blessing. And I think the way this passage kind of breaks it down to help us understand what this community looks like is that there's both a personal dimension and a corporate dimension. There's a personal and corporate dimension to this community that is shaped by God's promises. So if we look at the personal dimension first, you'll actually, we have to look at the details. We've got to look at the individual bricks of this wall that is before us. And you'll notice that a lot of the names that are listed are actually classified by their profession, their occupation. So you have Uziel, the goldsmith. You have Hananiah, the perfumer. There's merchants. There's tradesmen. All of them are working on the wall. Now the significance is seen in the fact that they're actually engaging in a massive rebuilding project in this city. Okay, this is not a Saturday workday party in Jerusalem. This is a long-term commitment It's an undertaking on an immense scale. Which means that each of these goldsmiths, perfumers, and tradesmen, each of them had to wrestle personally with the question of whether or not it was worth it to work on the wall. Each of them had to sacrifice something. To devote themselves to rebuilding meant that they had to put their businesses aside for a season. They had to place that business deal on hold and miss a few networking opportunities. They had to be willing to not meet their quarterly projections or be willing not to make enough money to go on that vacation this year. For them to embrace God's promises, they had to place more value on seeking his presence among his people than on any profit that they wanted to acquire for themselves. If you want God's presence, it's going to cost you something. And we face that same dilemma. Each of us has to personally ask ourselves the same question of whether or not it's worth it to pursue God's presence in our lives. And it's hard sometimes because deep down we know that he requires something of us. We have to give something up. It's not free as though we can continue to do what we want. It's costlier than we think. And Nehemiah 3 is a reminder that you can't fully participate in the work of the kingdom until you wrestle with the question of whether or not there's something else more important in your life to work on. You can't fully participate in the kingdom 
until you wrestle with the question of whether or not there's something else in your life more important to work on. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, don't hear me, don't, I don't, I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to have a good job or be successful. I don't think that has anything to do whatsoever with this passage. Actually, these men were successful. It's not a question of um, success or a great job. It's a question of priority. It's a question of priority of having to weigh out what is it that truly matters in the end? What is it that's ultimately remembered? What is it that lasts? What is more foundational than those things that I could pursue elsewhere? And it faces us with the question of purpose. Do I find more purpose in God's story or more purpose in a story of my own making? Do I find more profit and gain in being obedient to what God has commanded or do I find more profit and gain in whatever I want? I was talking to somebody this week who uh, is incredibly encouraging to listen to them. Their business is growing quite rapidly. It's growing in many ways, and it's blessed beyond what they had expected. They never intended to grow. They just kind of wanted to get to a place and continue on. But nonetheless, now they're growing. But the reason they're growing isn't simply because of better business deals and better planning. It isn't because they want to make more profit that they've decided to invest in growth. It's actually because it gives them more opportunity to hire women from a rehabilitation center. They've seen the lives that have been changed. They took an opportunity to hire a couple and they see the lives that were changed and an opportunity to give them dignity when nobody else would, to give them an opportunity to make money and get their life back on track again, to learn new skills. And I can assure you that this person really could care less about profit. Their business exists for a whole different kind of purpose. And I loved hearing them talk because it was bounded on something completely different. There was a deeper layer to their business and their enterprise that gave them, that completely rearranged their priorities. Something had taken over and became more foundational than profit. And I think the ultimate personal challenge of Nehemiah 3. The personal challenge is that as a human being, as someone who is meant to know God intimately, you need a far bigger and better mission for your life than any mission statement that your employer can give you or your business could come up with or any other profit that you would seek. You need something far bigger. Because the truth is, Any of those things, any of those purposes could be taken from you in an instant. And then what? Tim Keller will, uh, every now and then, he'll reference a phrase from Tolkien in Lord of the Rings. And you've seen the scene in the beginning of The Two Towers where uh, Gandalf uh, comes back, you know, to, um, I think, Legolas and uh, Aragorn. And he begins to tell them about what had happened after he fell into that huge chasm in the mountain of Moria after he was fighting the Balrog. And in that scene, they keep falling and falling and falling. It's a magnificent scene, but they fall what seems like forever, and they go deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And Tolkien calls that place, where they finally get to the very bottom, Tolkien calls it the uttermost foundations of stone. Maybe it would come across better if I could say that in a British accent, but (laughs) I won't try. He calls it the uttermost foundations of stone. It was the very bottom of Middle Earth, the very foundations of the world. So when Jesus calls you to follow him, he's essentially asking to become the uttermost foundations of stone in your life. That all other priorities become second and everything else is built on him. And in Nehemiah 3, we see what happens to a people when that begins to happen. We see a people that are, beginning, that are shaped in new ways when they find a new purpose, when God and his purposes become their uttermost foundation, which ultimately helps us to understand the corporate aspect of Nehemiah 3. Because the truth is, this chapter, this chapter is a special in the Old Testament because it's describing an event. It's describing a time in Israel's history where there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. In the past, you'd often see, um, you would see the ministry happening through an individual. You would see Moses, David, Solomon, the judges, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph. You'd see kind of Israel's hopes resting with this one individual. But this passage shows something completely different. It shows a profound solidarity in Israel that's never been seen before because it's all hands on deck and everyone is doing the exact same work together. You see the high priests and the other high priests working next to the merchants. You see one half, you see the ruler of one half of Jerusalem working next to the ruler of the other half of Jerusalem. And they're working next to another man whose daughters are working with them. And next to them, you have the Levites, and next to them, the temple servants, and next to them, goldsmith, and people from other re- regions, and people from other cities, and tradesmen, all the way around the city, surrounding the temple, rebuilding the walls. All of them had come together to rebuild, and it's unlike anything in the entire Old Testament. There's truly nothing like it. The clergy working with businessmen, arm in arm next to women with out-of-towners and in-towners, Everything else comes to a halt so that God would once again become the uttermost foundations of stone in the life of his people. Because to pursue anything else is foolish because it will simply crumble in the end. And when this happens, Israel becomes a radically different kind of community. When God's promises sank deep into their hearts as their purpose and their rallying cry together, they were no longer defined by worldly notions of distinction, class distinction, economic and social division, what neighborhood you're from, what part of town you're from, what side of the tracks you're from, or what economic or what tax bracket you occupy. All of those things became secondary, and they all shared the same foundation. And it brought them together, and they laid claim to that which God had promised. Is that true of us? Is that true of you? Have you seen the solidarity? Does this passage challenge you to reflect the solidarity that you invest in in this community, in this church? 
Have you had people to your home that don't make as much money as you do? Do you take the time to get to know people that, and serve alongside people that aren't like you, that are different than you, that might not agree with you on everything? The truth is, if not, then you are missing out on a radical part of God's promises for you. And in verse 5, we also see others that had missed out. We see that the nobles of Tekoa, it says they would not stoop to serve their Lord. They wouldn't stoop down. They wouldn't stoop low. They're unwilling to join in the work because to do so would threaten the very foundations of the life they've built for themselves or their image of themselves. There was something they were unwilling to give up to participate in the work. So how is it that we know that we might be like them? Well, it's in those places we find disunity. When our hearts prioritize other things and our foundations are built on something other than what God would desire for us. When that happens, we automatically distance ourselves from the work he's called us to do and from the people that he's called us to do it with. If we value money and success, then we only associate with people of our economic strata. Or if we value a certain style of parenting above all else, a certain style of parenting or education, then we just kind of end up distancing ourselves from people that don't do it the same way we do. Or people that don't value the same things that we do, we judge them in our hearts. And we find no reason to have any sort of unity with them. Or if you value power and position and social settings, then really you have no reason to talk to someone who's a quiet introvert, who's soft-spoken. The truth is, to have any other foundation other than what God would desire for us is to distance ourselves from God and his people and to ultimately miss out on the eternal work that he's called us to. (coughs) The truth is, Nehemiah 3 isn't just a list. It's a foreshadowing of the church that Jesus will eventually create a people that aren't defined by race or income or nation or neighborhood, working together to lay claim to that which God has promised. Where Christ has torn down walls, why do we put them up? And where they were called to build walls, then we are called to build something far greater that won't crumble, that won't fade. We're called to build his kingdom, not only in our lives as individuals, but in the life of our church together. To make Jesus the uttermost foundation of stone among us. But the reality is, if we actually look at the particular work before us of building the kingdom, the truth is that building the kingdom often feels like laying bricks, one after the other. It feels like hard work, it's laborious, it can feel pointless at times. We feel like our attempts to build go unnoticed by a friend or a spouse or a family member. It feels like it doesn't make any sense at times and it's discouraging. It can feel like laying bricks to teach your children about Jesus or to pray with them. It can feel like laying bricks to teach our children in Sunday school. It can feel like laying bricks to love others who are hard for you to love. It can feel like laying bricks to pursue Jesus in your devotional life or feel like bricks to make Jesus the foundation of stone in your marriage or in your finances or in your job. 
And eventually we will all wrestle with the fact that at some point it feels like there is no point. Our attempts to build aren't appreciated and won't be remembered. We look for greater meaning and purpose in trying to build the kingdoms, but at times it feels like meaning and purpose are really hard to see. But what's true of this list is true of you. The people in Nehemiah 3, when they rebuilt the temple and city walls, they're paving the way for Jesus to show up. They're paving the way for God's presence to finally arrive in full. They paved the way for the Messiah to come and to pass through its city gates on a donkey, to walk into the temple and to cleanse it, and ultimately to die outside of these walls. They didn't understand quite, they didn't quite imagine and encompass in their mind what this work would ultimately mean. But the truth is, it meant far more than they would have ever imagined. And building the kingdom like them is often laborious and it's hard work. But the promise before you is that you are paving the way for the Messiah to come. To show up in your life and in your children and in your marriage and in the life of your neighbor. To keep trying to talk to them. To keep trying to see God's kingdom extended. Just like in Nehemiah 3, God smiles on those who build one brick at a time and continue the work. And how do we know that he smiles and delights in the work? Because they're remembered. They're remembered. And their work is not forgotten. And the truth is, neither is yours. Because right now, Jesus is compiling a list of his own. It's filled with names in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's no ordinary list. It's not a list that he will pass by, quickly glance at, and move on. It's the most important list of all. And this list represents the fact that your Savior does not forget. He does not despise the small things. He does not despise the small bricks and those who continue to labor. He delights in those who continue to build his kingdom one brick at a time. And he will remember. So rise up and keep building. Because in Christ you have a portion and a right and a claim to all of God's promises that can never be taken away or fade or crumble. Let's pray. Jesus, sometimes your work is difficult and it's hard to see why or we should do it or how you will accomplish your purposes. But yet you continue to call us to be faithful. You continue to call us to face the insurmountable odds of the brokenness of this world and trust that you are victorious. You continue to challenge us to build your kingdom each and every day in our lives, brick by brick, prayer by prayer, day after day, seeking you and your presence in our lives. We ask that you would remind us that you, that nothing goes unnoticed by you. That often when we feel that it's pointless and hopeless, you're actually doing something far more beautiful than we could imagine. Out of this passage today, Father, would you give us hope? Give us hope that you do not forget, and you are the God who remembers. 
And you are the God who will remember us when death overtakes us. And like Jesus, you will raise us from the dead. We ask all these things in your powerful name. Amen.